Well, praise God for a great serve day yesterday. Thank you to all who came and served in various ways in our community. And the desire of Serve Day is that it wouldn't just be something we do periodically throughout the year, but it would really be uh, a springboard to us being people who are serving in our community on a regular basis. And I just, I have to say thank you to our worship team and choir for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, praise Jesus. And it is great to see the representation and leadership from our students, and it's awesome what God is doing uh, through Alec and in our student ministry. And as we, we think about worship and really just kind of sitting in that moment and just really being amazed at who Christ is, that's the, the spirit, the attitude that I hope you take as we continue in the word of God this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, if you want to open your Bibles to there. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for about a year and a half now, and as we come near the end of this series and the end of the Gospel of Mark, the events of this series and all the events of Mark have been leading to this moment today. What we are looking at today is the central point of human history. It is what much of what we do as the church revolves around. It's why we practice baptism it's why we take communion. It has shaped human history. We have arrived at the cross. We're gonna spend three weeks looking at the cross. I think we could spend a lifetime treasuring what took place in these six hours or so and never fully give it the attention it deserves. Next week, we have our Disciple Now student ministry event uh, where my friend Tim O'Carroll will be uh, preaching. And so on Sunday morning, he'll be uh, closing out Disciple Now weekend, and we're sure to be blessed from Tim and what he'll bring next week. And then the following two weeks, we will reflect more on the cross. Today, I just want to walk through the scriptures in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels and show how these verses relate to every time we gather and how they relate to us as we scatter, as we live lives in light of the cross. So I'll begin in Mark chapter 15, verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. A typical Roman battalion consisted of six centuries, which typically had about 80 to 100 active men in them. So here gathered at the governor's temporary headquarters set up in Jerusalem is approximately 480 to 600 Roman soldiers. They begin to mock Jesus, propping him up as a king, putting a purple robe on him. Now Matthew calls uh, the robe scarlet as it does have somewhat of a maroon, somewhat of a maroon tent to it. We'll just call it a murple and understand that Matthew and Mark agree. There was an, this was an expensive fabric that would be worn by royalty, and that is precisely why they take it and put it on Jesus. They also make a crown of thorns and put it on him. It was likely not an instrument of torture, as is often depicted, as much as it is just a sign of further mockery of this king of the Jews. And they offer these sarcastic salutes to him. Verse 19 says, And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The imperfect tense indicates that this is ongoing as they are carrying out the governor's orders, hitting him with a pretend king's scepter that they made for him, 
spitting on him to make it clear that he is the inferior one and kneeling down before him to mock him. Then they put his clothes back on him. Typically, people were crucified naked, but the Jews found that offensive, so they put the clothes back on him and led him out to be crucified. Carrying the crossbeam of the cross was typically assigned to those who were to be crucified. The Greek philosopher Plutarch said that every criminal who goes to execution must carry his own cross on his back. The crossbeam weighed about 40 pounds, so it was something that could be normally done by yourself. But apparently the treatment of Jesus isn't normal, and it's so severe that he needed help carrying his cross. Verse 21 says, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Cyrene is a large town in Africa. This Simon is likely visiting during Passover, as many would. We're not absolutely certain who these people are. However, there is a Rufus that is mentioned in Romans 16.33 that many believe is the same Rufus. And since Mark is the only gospel writer who mentions these names and his letter was written to the church in Rome, it is very likely to conclude that these sons are indeed members of the church in Rome and that this act led to their father's faith in Christ and to their faith in Christ and ultimately to many others trusting in Christ. Luke tells us there's a crowd following Jesus on his journey to his crucifixion. There were some mourning and lamenting for him. They're likely hired by someone to mourn and lament, which would be something that was customary in that day when somebody was passing away or about to pass away. Jesus tells them to mourn for themselves, and it reminds them of the coming judgment on Israel that is the fulfillment of Hosea chapter 10. And so Simon carries the cross with Jesus to the place he will be crucified. Verse 22 says, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. This name Golgotha does not appear in any other historical writings. Constantine would later build a sacred enclave where legend said was this site, which is the place of the church of the Holy Sepulcher uh, where it's located today. But after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, it's hard to know for certain where the site was. According to Roman law, we know that crucifixion was to take place outside of the city. Quintilian said, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. According to John chapter 19 and Hebrews 11, this did indeed happen outside but near the city. In a place referred to here as Golgotha, or maybe we're more familiar with the term Calvary, which is a Latin term which really means skull. It's a smooth hilltop devoid of vegetation, which gives a bald head appearance or a skull appearance. But what is most important is not the certainty of the where it happened, but the certainty of the why it happened. We move on in verse 23. It says, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. According to the Talmud, the women of Jerusalem offered a narcotic drink to people to alleviate the pain of execution. Proverbs 31 gives this instruction. There have also been those who said this was further mockery, that they were giving him a glass of wine as if he was a king, uh, a victorious king who would get a glass of wine. Matthew tells us that they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So he could either tell it was a narcotic or he could tell it was a joke and he refused. The tense here records his definite refusal to drink it. And so back to Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 24 it says, and they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
Now what you'll notice is Mark, like the other gospel writers, does not explain the crucifixion in detail. Part of the reason for this is the original readers would understand the crucifixion. We know some about the crucifixion because of historical and archeological evidence. We know that people were typically stripped to increase humiliation. We know that they were fastened to the crossbeam by nails and then the crossbeam was lifted up and put into place. And then a plank would be fastened to support uh, the buttocks because the body couldn't hold by nails. And then historian Matthew France says crucifixion was a lingering doom. It was a slow and painful death. And perhaps there is more that could be said about crucifixion, but the gospel writers have not sought to answer the question, what was his suffering like? But to address the question, what did his suffering achieve? We see that Jesus was hung on the cross, the soldiers dividing his garments. The typical Jewish person in this day wore five articles of clothing, the outer robe, the inner robe, sandals, a turban, and a girdle. Clothing was much more valuable then than it is now. You couldn't go to Ross dress for less or somewhere. And so the Roman soldiers divide the spoils and play a little game to gamble over who gets Jesus' clothing. And right there, the prophetic statement by David in Psalm 22, verse 18, is fulfilled. And as they are doing this, Jesus, seeing the mockery, seeing the pride, and yet in anguish on the cross, says, according to Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here we see the mercy of God on full display. As he's hanging on the cross, and their prideful acts are taking place near the feet of the king of the world. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. John 19 tells us that Jesus tells Mary and the disciple he loved to take care of each other. And then according to Mark 15, verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, there's some seeming inconsistencies in the times listed in the Gospels, but we need to understand that time notations from the time of Christ and before were very inexact, being little or no resemblance to the modern concept of punctuality. It's probably best to understand the expression, the third hour, not as a precise reference to 9 a.m., but as an approximate reference to mid-morning, from 7.30 or 8 a.m. to 10 or 10.30 a.m., likewise, the sixth hour could refer to any time from 10.30 a.m. or 11 a.m., to 1 p.m. or 1.30 p.m. Some of you guys operate on this kind of unprecise time. Ultimately here, there is no final contradiction in the times given, especially given the fact that John gives an approximation, an about, of something that was not meant to be precise in the first place. The focus here is on the why. And we see why in what was written on the cross. Verse 26 tells us, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. It was customary for the executed individual either to have a sign hanging around his neck as he proceeded to the place of execution or to have another individual carrying a sign in front of him. And on that sign or around his neck was the declaration of his guilt so that people could see as he was on his way to execution, they could then understand why he was on his way to execution. 
And so if you were a political rebel, it would indicate that you were a political rebel, and that's what people would know is why you were being killed. If you were a thief, it would indicate that you were a thief, and people would see as you're on your way to be crucified that you were a thief, or if you were a murderer. Jesus' sign, as he's on his way to execution, read, the king of the Jews. The Gospel of John explains a little more clearly how this happened. John 19, verse 19 through 22, says that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. God in his sovereignty saw fit that what would be hung around Jesus' neck or declared before Jesus walked was he was on his way to be executed because he was the king of the Jews. Here, hanging on the cross for everyone to see was the fact that the Jews had the Romans crucify their own king. Seeing him not as a king, but as a, as a criminal. And Mark tells us, verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, and one on his left. This seems to indicate that they had prepared to crucify someone else. Was it Barabbas, perhaps? But verse 28 is uh, a scripture you might see in your translation of the Bible uh, that says this took place to fulfill the scripture. Verse 28 in Mark chapter 15 is actually not found in most ancient manuscripts. It's something that sounds a lot more like Matthew than Mark, and so this is something that was probably later added. But again, back, back to our original manuscripts, it's not in there. But it doesn't change anything, and indeed, what's taking place here is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. As Matthew points out, he is numbered with the transgressors. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, the mockery continues. Verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross so also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. If you remember, Jesus said that if they destroy this temple, I'll rise it up, raise it up again in three days. When he said that, he was talking about his body. They tried to say that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and that was the reason he deserved to be killed. He did later indicate that the temple would be destroyed, which it was, and this is what people had thought he had said. And so as he hung there on the cross, they mockingly said, if you can rebuild the temple, then certainly you can come down from the cross. Let this Christ, the NIV says, do this. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, I'm not 100% sure what the Messiah is supposed to be like, but I'm pretty sure he shouldn't be hanging on a cross. Luke tells us that chapter 23, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? 
save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man understood, we deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. And seeing who Jesus was and what was taking place in Jesus' life, he understood who Jesus was. And he asked him to remember him. And Jesus says, I will. And here we see why Jesus did not come down from the cross. Jesus did not save himself so that he could save you and me. This was the plan of God. I just want to say, he could come down from the cross. But it wasn't in his character to use his authority outside of submission to the Father. We've seen that clearly displayed in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan is trying to get him to do things that he has the authority and right to do, and yet doing them then is not in line with the will of the Father. And so he doesn't. And Mark tells us, verse 33 of chapter 15, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The darkness is another detail that has been studied and debated in depth. This could not have been a regular eclipse as there's a full moon at Passover. So we're not really sure what happened here. But I like how scholar R. Alan Cole says this. He says, the exact cause used by God is, of course, immaterial. It is the symbolism which is important here. If you think back to the book of Exodus, then you realize that there were these ten plagues that came over the land of Egypt. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. It preceded the tenth and final plague that delivered Israel finally from bondage, where a lamb would be sacrificed to preserve the death of the firstborn and would lead to their freedom. The darkness here indicates that there was blood to be shed, that there was a lamb to be slain, and to provide shelter from the judgment of which the darkness itself spoke. The point is actually very clear. The darkness is a symbol of God's judgment. And the darkness points to the desertion that Jesus experiences. Not simply because all of his disciples have departed and have left him and fled, but the darkness and the desertion that is represented in his cry from the cross. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's some challenge in interpreting this verse, but it is very likely that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1 in Aramaic. Because of the suffering that Jesus is experiencing, it feels like God has forsaken him. 
But Jesus knows that God has not forsaken him. And here's how I know that. Because he's quoting scripture. He's quoting the word of God on the cross. Psalm 22, a cling to this feeling that God has forsaken us, but knowing that he hasn't. A lot of times amongst Christianity, there has been a move to say, hey, we don't need to focus on the scripture so much. We are Jesus people. Jesus is at the center of what we do. Why is the Bible so important? Here is why the Bible is so important to us, because Jesus is at the center, and the Bible was important to Jesus. Here on the cross, Jesus is quoting scripture. And this scripture is explaining that Jesus is experiencing what we will from then on teach as doctrine. The Apostle Paul says it very well in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What we understand is happening to Jesus here is the curse of sin is being placed on him. He's becoming a curse for us so that we might be reconciled to God. And in verse 35, it says, some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. There was a belief that Elijah was going to return. This is why they thought Jesus would be calling upon him. And there are a lot of theories on this sponge, and they preach well, but we don't know for certain if any of them are actually true. Here's what we know. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. There's a lot of theories on what actually killed Jesus, most people who were crucified would either hang on until exhaustion or dehydration or traumatic fever or suffocation. We don't actually know. But we do know that he died on the cross. John 19, through 37 says, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You know, whenever I used to lead communion, I, st I still lead communion, but whenever I do that, I used to say his body broken for us. And somebody, rightly so, said to me one time, you shouldn't say his body broken for us. Because the scripture said he would not have a bone broken in his body. And God kept his promise. So many scriptures are fulfilled in what is happening here. Because this is not the plan gone wrong. This is the plan. And Jesus trusted in the plan. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Again, this is language of the Psalms. Alistair Begg says, after all the darkness and all the dereliction, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the forsakenness, here we find Jesus in closest communion with his father once again, entrusting himself into his hands. Jesus had told Mary and Joseph when they found him way back in the beginning of the gospels in the temple in Jerusalem that he had to be about his father's business. And here he is at the end of his earthly life 
still about his father's business. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And that's really it. They crucified him. He breathed his last. And the work was finished. Verse 38 tells us, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Outer curtain separated the sanctuary from the outer porch, keeping the Gentiles out of the sanctuary. And another inner veil separated the holy place and the most holy place. I think the gospels are talking about the veil into the holy place. But I want you to know that both of those veils have been torn. That the gospel Being God's child is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentile, it's for all, and that the holy place is somewhere we can walk into because of the one high priest and his sacrifice for us. Matthew tells us that the earth shook in such a way that the rocks split at this time, but the earthquake did not cause the curtain to split as it would have been torn in several directions. Matthew also tells us that the tombs were open, many bodies of the saints who fell asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, here's another thing that is debated by a lot of people. Is this talking about all the Old Testament people? Did this happen at the resurrection of Jesus? Is there another resurrection to come? Y'all, I don't know. There's such mystery in the magnitude of what is taking place here. And here is what we know that this means. What this means is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter to the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. From faith of Abraham to the faith today, he is faithful. So our last verse in Mark states this, verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of of God. Matthew tells us that he saw the earthquake and they were filled with awe, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. And Luke tells us, they said, certainly this man was innocent. This centurion saw the power of God, he saw the character of God, and he saw the innocence of God, and he realized this is the Son of God. And so there's really only one question for you today. There's only one question for us today. What is your response to the crucifixion of Jesus? What is our response to the crucifixion of Jesus? Are we like the centurion and we realize his power? We realize his innocence, we see his character, and we recognize this is the Son of God. Or are we like the others? Luke tells us that all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. There's a sense of victory from some of those who had come to watch Jesus be crucified. I guess if I were to summarize it, people were leaving the scene and all saying the same thing. It's over. It's finished. But many were saying, how can we expect anything beyond this? He was a good man. We thought he had said something about a kingdom, but I guess that's finished. 
People reject Christ today on the basis of the same logic. And in their, perhaps your arrogance, they say, well, I'm a spiritual person. I mean, I couldn't say I'm a religious person. And I don't know about all of this, but I do know that whatever Jesus is, you can't possibly be suggesting that the pivotal event of human history, that the answer to the dilemma of my spiritual condition, that my brokenness and the brokenness of our world is directly answered here in this account. I mean, I'm not gonna say that I'm a religious person and I understand things, and I don't know a great deal about saviors or messiahs, but the little I do know, I'm pretty sure the messiah shouldn't be hanging up there dying. But friends, listen to me. This is it. And the reason you feel awkward or annoyed or even maybe a sense of animosity towards this is because of your condition. If this story is foolishness to you, it is because you are perishing. And if this story is boring to you and you'd rather hear about three keys to a happy, successful life, I tend to think you will receive your reward in full in this life. But if this story is causing your heart to feel like it is going to burst out of your chest, it is because you are being saved. It is finished. But it's not finished in the way a lot of people think. It's finished in the sense of a work completed, a sacrifice accepted, and a communion between the Father and the Son restored, and our heart now having a way of being reconciled to God by the cross of Jesus. I just have one note for you today. Jesus didn't save himself on that day so that he could save you and me today. Jesus, who had the authority and the power to come down from the cross, did not do that so that he could save you and me today. Jesus trusted in the plan of the Father in the wilderness. Jesus trusted in the plan of the Father in the garden. And Jesus trusted in the plan of the Father because it was the joy that was set before him that we might become adopted into the king of God. This is love. Not that we loved God, 1 John 4, 10 says, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. God is love. Loving us, not because we are deserving, but loving us because he loves us because it's who he is. It's his character. And so today my hope is that your heart in hearing this understands the authority of Jesus, understands the innocence of Jesus, sees the character of Jesus, and you trust him with your heart. And Christian, this ought to never grow old. We ought to be totally okay if we open this up every single Sunday morning and just reveled in the cross. You see, Jesus is not a part of life. He is life. The gospel is not the diving board. It is the pool in which we swim around. And this is what we were created for. This is the song of heaven that we will sing to Christ for all of eternity. And so our response now ought to be to sing about it. So that's what we're gonna do, is we're gonna respond to the, the person of Christ. And as we do that, I want us to understand what eternity is like, what God is doing, 
And so I'm gonna invite you to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter five. If you, if you have a Bible with you, if not, the verses will be on the screen. And I'm actually gonna invite you to stand as we look at Revelation chapter five. And as we prepare to sing in response about the work of the cross, I want us to realize what heaven's song is. Revelation chapter five, beginning in verse one, John's vision. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, <laughs> weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. In Jesus' name, amen. 